There is a French film set in Provence, Provence, France, and it is called Jean Giflorette, 1986. Uh, it is, the setting is right after the Great War, right after World War I. It tells a story of the townspeople of this little village who are plotting against this man named Jean who has just inherited a piece of land there outside the village. And the goal of the townspeople's nefarious plot is to cause Jean's farm, his new farm, to fail so that they can take possession of the property. Now, the land in that area does not receive much rainfall each year, so any water you can get to irrigate your crops or your vines is of critical importance. But Jean's property is unique in that it has a little stream that flows through the property. Now, what they do before Jean is fully familiar with his property that he has inherited is they sneak onto his land at night and they locate the spring that sources the stream that flows through his property and they cement over the spring and then they cover it up with dirt. They don't want him to be aware of the stream or the spring that flows on his property Um, and they do a good job. He's unaware that it's there. And so not knowing that it's there, he goes to a more distant water supply and each day over, walks this journey over a mile away to gather water and to haul it onto his property. And so this becomes his regular habit. In the beginning, no problem. In the beginning, he is willing to make that walk and to lug all of that water onto his property. But eventually, the back breaking work proves to be just too much. Unable and unwilling to continue hauling that water, um, he just kind of gives up. And sadly, Jean never discovers um, that he already has on his property this unlimited supply of water. Never discovers that. And I think this points to an unfortunate spiritual reality for a lot of believers. They have put their faith in Christ. They have entered into a new relationship with God through Jesus Christ. They've experienced that forgiveness that flows from Calvary. Calvary. Did I say Calvary? Yeah, Calvary. They've received the gift of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And then somehow, for some reason, the never-ending source, the spring that lives within them, the Holy Spirit, becomes hidden to them, perhaps neglected in their spiritual journey. Eventually, it's kind of a forgotten part of their Christian faith, really. And they, like Jean, spend their lives in this exhausting 
work, this back-breaking effort of trying to haul some peace and some joy and some power into their life from somewhere else. From somewhere else. And the neglect, this lost spiritual power, isn't simply a phenomenon of the modern church, but it goes back to the very beginning, or close to the very beginning. Paul writes a letter to a church in Galatia to Christians who had experienced this. They had simply kind of forgotten about the Holy Spirit in their lives. And listen to the language he uses to call them back to that in Galatians chapter 3. Here's what he says. (laughs) How foolish can you be? After starting your Christian lives in the what? In the spirits... Why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it was not in vain, was it? Now, I won't presume to to tell your story. I can only tell my personal story this morning, but I can tell you for about half of my Christian life, I did neglect the Holy Spirit. It kind of became covered up and hidden in my life. Um, I neglected the power source by which, and according to Paul, only by which I could grow in my faith, become mature as a child of God. And so mine was this same story, like from the movie of this Backbreaking toil of do it yourself, pull yourself up by the bootstraps Christianity, and it was exhausting. It really was, and there was very little progress. And I'm not going to blame anybody for that except myself. I had the Bible, I should have seen in the scriptures the role of the Holy Spirit, what God had provided for me what I had in fact received at my conversion to Christ. I should have been able to notice just from looking in the Bible what I was missing out on. Instead, I accepted what I was told by people. I was told by preachers and leaders and Bible class teachers, which frankly wasn't much when it came to the Holy Spirit. Not much at all. What I was taught, or rather, I guess you could say the focus of the teaching, was specifically on what the Holy Spirit doesn't do today. Here's why we believe He doesn't do this. Here's why we believe the Holy Spirit doesn't do this other thing. Here's why we're kind of afraid of people or worried about people who do believe He still does that. So... What I was taught, the focus of the teaching was what on the Holy Spirit doesn't do. I was told that, you know, there, there's no longer tongue speaking today. There's no longer prophecies. There's no longer miracles by the Holy Spirit. He doesn't do any of those things anymore. And so the teaching seemed like, pretty sure it was, more of a reaction to what some other religious group or groups believed than what was actually in the Bible and what what was actually available to us as Christians. 
seemed like a reaction. And what I was taught about the Spirit and what He does in, in our time or doesn't do, it seemed to be more like the Holy Spirit was a retired author. He had been involved in the collection of the books of the Bible. He works through the written Word of God, and that's pretty much it. Anything else we're not sure about, and we're kind of worried if you believe he does anything belong that. That's what I was taught. I'm not saying that's what you were taught, okay? Uh, there were hints, I think, from time to time of the Holy Spirit doing more than that, but they were just whispers. You dare not speak that aloud, certainly not in any kind of formal setting at church. And then in my 20s, a couple of different things happened. First, I started reading the Bible for myself. Um, and second, I started actually beginning to experience the Spirit at work in my life, doing things that I simply could not explain. I knew they were not coming from my hard work or anything like that. He was doing things. Um, and I began to discover what I'm calling today the unknown God. The unknown God. Again, this may or may not be your experience. This is my journey. And I think, as I'm working on this this week and planning for the series and praying about this series, I think about the Apostle Paul, who traveled to Athens and who was preaching the gospel, the story of Jesus there in a city full of gods, different pagan gods. Uh, so there was a lot of belief there. There was a lot of superstition there. There was also a lot of skepticism there and unbelief there as well. Uh, there were schools of philosophy and societies of debate that talked about all sorts of things. And as he went up to preach at the Areopagus on top of Mars Hill, he would have walked along this road with all sorts of shrines and altars and idols and I've always loved the way he began his sermon. He began talking about, you know, as I was walking up here today, I passed by one of your gods. <laughs> I passed by one of your altars. And it is an altar to the unknown God. And he begins to tell them, I'm going to proclaim this God to you today, the unknown God. And I think about that because I think about, you know, as people walked by that altar every day and they had to think, well, there's a God. Uh, we don't know much about him, haven't really experienced him. He is unknown to us. And I think, really, the unknown God would be a pretty apt description for a lot of people, a lot of Christians, for the Holy Spirit. He's the unknown God. The Father, get it. The Son, get it. The Holy Spirit, we're not really sure about that one. And so today is just kind of a beginning point. Really, let's humbly listen to the Word Let's humbly seek the face of God together. And I believe that he will himself help us discover more about him. So, in this introduction, we're going to work mainly from Romans chapter 8. There's a lot in Romans chapter 8. And we'll only even get a bit of an overview of what Romans chapter 8 says about the Holy Spirit. But what I wanted to do right off the bat this morning is just kind of share, this is what we're about for the next few weeks, kind of expectations for this series, The Spirit Within. And you can actually jot these down on the outline this morning. I want you to know where we're headed, what we're doing. Um, one of the expectations that I have for this series that I hope that you will have for this, this series is that you will grow in an appreciation and an awareness of the work 
of the Spirit. Okay? That you'll see what he is up to. Appreciate the things that he has done, is doing, and will do in your life. If you're a baptized believer, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then you have the Holy Spirit in your life. You have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. He lives in you. He does. Now, he's working on you. He's working in you. And my hope and your prayer is that you can begin to see that and appreciate that. Maybe you do to some extent, but that you can grow in that awareness and serve out of that awareness that the unknown God, that that which is hidden and maybe covered up with some dirt over there will begin to, to become much more known and provide the life-giving spring of power and love in your life. He may be hidden, he may be unknown, but he does, in fact, live within you. The second expectation is this, that you will actually have greater expectations for the Spirit's work in your life. Contrary to Scripture, many have come to expect little to nothing from the Holy Spirit. Now, I'll give a little bit of a teaser for next week. We're actually going to begin, because I think this is important to do, we're actually going to explore why it is that many Christians expect little to nothing from the Holy Spirit. Why some of us may have come to, to that point. We'll talk about that a little bit next week. But I hope that you will grow in your expectations um, that He is going to do great things in your life. The third thing is this, that you will experience more companionship, a greater sense of fellowship or communion with Him. Now, one more thing before we kind of get into Romans 8 this morning. And this is rather important, very, really very important because it actually comes from the Lord Jesus. Um, just before his death, we celebrated last week on Easter, his death, burial, and resurrection. Just before all of that happened, he had a, a series of conversations with his inner circle, with his disciples. He began to discuss with them um, what was going to come, including, very importantly, I'm not going to be here with you anymore. I am physically, not, I mean, they, they, they ate with him, they slept around the campfire with him, they were there personally when he was performing miracles and when he was teaching, and he's like, I'm not physically going to be with you anymore, and this is very important. I, you know, I will be arrested, I will be killed, I'll be buried, I'll be raised, I will ascend to the right hand of God. Now, the disciples, we know, John tells us and others uh, other writers tell us they were kind of confused about this. They were bewildered by this. They, they didn't know exactly what it meant, but they knew they didn't like it because they'd been with him for three years. Now we're not going to be with you in that way. Um, so they sure weren't liking whatever it was that he was trying to tell them. You know, I'm going away. Uh, we don't want you to go away, Jesus. But he revealed to them very clearly that there is something or someone that they are going to receive that they can only receive if he goes away. And the kicker is, this is going to be even better than my physical presence with you, uh, for you. It's going to be better for you. Listen to what he says in John 16, verse 7. Jesus says, guys, I tell you the truth. It, what? It is to your 
advantage. It is better for you, okay? It is to your advantage that I go away. Why? For if I do not go away, the helper, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. Now, look, it's been amazing that they have been able to talk with him, ask questions, pray with him, watch him at work. Um, I have to confess I'm jealous. I think, I think every Christian's probably experienced, wouldn't that have been amazing to walk with Jesus, to be with Jesus in that way? But according to Jesus, his departure is necessary so that something better can come. A presence more advantageous to them can come. And that's pretty incredible when you think about it. That, that in actuality, in actuality, I think most of us would probably choose a physical Jesus over an invisible spirit. But the Lord himself says it's better to have the spirit within than to have Jesus beside them. And if you're wondering or thinking, wow, I can't believe he said, go back to what Jesus said. Read that again for yourself because this is what he says. You can write this down. The spirit within me is better than the Jesus beside me. The spirit within is better than the Jesus. It's more advantageous than having Jesus beside me. How, Lord, could that possibly be true? First, we know this, Jesus and the Father and the Spirit, they are one. They are three in one. This is the Trinity. So really, Jesus is saying, I'm going to be within you. The Spirit within you is my Spirit living within you. And when you think about that, I think it's kind of a jaw dropper. It's like, wow, okay. Okay, and last week we did celebrate Easter, the glorious uh, resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And guess what? In our text this morning from Romans chapter 8, Paul is going to tell the believers in Rome, he's going to tell them that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. The same power that resurrected Jesus lives in you. And that's Romans 8, 11. One day he will raise you. The power within will raise you from death to life, just as Christ was raised. But in the meantime, he has lots and lots of things he wants to do with you, in you, for you, and through you. Because he lives in you. And he's not supposed to be dormant. He's supposed to be active in your life. The same power that made Easter happen, the same spirit lives in you. Look at your neighbor right now and just say, the same power. Just do that for me. The same power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives 
in you. Now let's dig a little bit this morning in Romans chapter 8 and uncover what may have become somewhat hidden or may, what may have been neglected or what may have been or is underappreciated. The first thing is this. From Romans chapter 8, just a few realities that are anchored in the truth of Scripture. The first one is this. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is a person. I really want you to get that down and understand that. The Holy Spirit is a person. So in a real sense, I experience the presence of God, the power of God in a personal way because the person of God is living in me. After all, he is the third person of the Trinity. Now, it's easy to miss this. It's easy to, uh, to kind of not see this, but it's very, very important. Uh, and it's easy to miss it because he's a spirit. He's not visible. You know, it's not something that you're going to touch. And so it's easy to miss that. But the Holy Spirit is not some simple power or force at work in the universe. The Spirit is a person. He is in eternal relationship, in communion with the Father and the Son. He's there in Genesis 1, verse 1, hovering over the waters. The language of the New Testament is, is very personal when it refers to the Spirit. In fact, you're going to have most often that personal pronoun, he, 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 talking about the Holy Spirit. Um, as a person, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit can be grieved. You can make the Holy Spirit sad. You can resist the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that you can actually blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. You don't, you don't blaspheme against some, some power or force. You, you blaspheme against the person of God. So as a person, as God living in you, He is very interested in you experiencing in a deep and personal way the power and presence of God. He is so concerned with that that he will be at work in your mind, in your heart, in your spirit to remind you constantly of this personal relationship that you now have with God. You don't just bend your knee in worship to an imper impersonal distant deity. You bend your knee and you worship and you celebrate your father you are in this relationship. And one of, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to impress that upon you, to remind you of that, to bring you into this communion with God the Father. Listen to verses 15 to 17 here. Romans 8. So you have not received a spirit that makes you, what? Fearful slaves, all right? Instead, you received God's Spirit when He adopted you as his own children. Now, we call him Abba, Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. You're his daughter. You're his son. The Holy Spirit affirms that identity. Abba, of course, you've heard this before, Aramaic for daddy. It's, it's the word that a small child would use when they address their father. Daddy, Abba. So when you put on Christ as your Lord and Savior, when you were baptized into Christ, you became a disciple of Christ in a legal sense, 
you were adopted into God's family. That's your adoption date, if you will. Now, some of you know really specifically what this means because you were actually adopted into those families where you were reared, where you grew up. And it's one thing, right, for this legal transfer to happen. It's another thing for you to actually see yourself as a member of the family, for you to actually look at that new father and say, Abba, say, Daddy. I read a story, and I'm pretty sure this is not uncommon, but it was one man writing about his own journey. He was born in Russia and spent his formative years there, very early years, in an orphanage there in Russia. And he tells his story. He talks about how he gets adopted, right, by an American family. And he is moved to the USA, moved into his new home, and how for a long time he would hide food and he would hide his toys and he would hide his clothing and his parents they're kind of confused by this they're definitely frustrated by this it is, it is a bad habit that they need to break in their new son eventually he stopped doing all of that doing all of that hiding and one day he ended up explaining to his mom and his dad back at the orphanage you had to protect your stuff. If you didn't hide that toy, if you didn't tuck away some of that food, if you didn't hide the new pair of socks that you got, somebody was going to take it. And so that's why I got that habit. It took me a while, but now I know and I feel that I'm safe here. I can trust you. I can trust this house. I don't fear experiencing wants or experiencing hunger anymore. I'm not afraid that someone's going to come and take all of my stuff away. And so this person of God, the Spirit, who lives in you, joins with your Spirit to affirm your new identity. Yes, it's true. You are God's child. Yes, it's true, you are secure in his love. You don't cower as a slave. You're his son. You are a co-heir with Jesus, your older brother. And he's not just your God. He's your father. He's your Abba. Now, I see that slave versus son idea in Romans chapter 8 being played out in that. Slaves hide their food. Slaves are concerned with protecting their stuff. Sons feel safe and free in the father's house. Right? Well, no Christian, read Romans 8, no Christian should ever feel like a spiritual orphan. All right? No Christian should ever feel that way. The Spirit of God lives in you so that you will not feel that way, so that you will know 24-7 you belong to the Father. You are precious to Him. Don't cover that up. Don't cement that over. The Spirit within you cries, Abba. So salvation is, in a sense, a legal act, a transfer of ownership from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. The righteousness of Jesus 
perfect and complete is credited to you by faith. So you have been justified. You have been made right by his death, his burial, his resurrection. And the day of your salvation is like that day when that child goes before a judge in a courtroom and that court gavel is banged, the court declares that you now belong to this new adopted family. You're part of this family. Your papers have come through. And you are legally part of the father's family. God, however, is not content with you just belonging to him as a daughter or son in the legal sense, okay? Um, he wants you to feel that in your bones. He wants you to experience that and to know that and to live in that closeness with God where it seems very natural for you to call the father your daddy, your Abba. Second thing here from Romans 8, the Spirit has a purpose for me. I like knowing that. The Spirit has a purpose for me. I am being shaped into the image of Jesus because of the Spirit within me. That purpose is going to play out in a lot of different ways. We'll explore some of those over the coming weeks, but primarily the destination, the, the focus of this journey of His work in me is to make me like Jesus. Listen to Romans 8 again. The Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. And we know that God causes, and you've heard this verse before, Romans 8, 20, 28, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to His purpose for them. So God has a purpose. For God knew His people in advance, and He chose them to become like his son. A lot of adoption language here in the end. He chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Obviously, there's a whole lot that you could unpack there and work with, and we're, we'll leave some of this for the weeks to come. But yeah, Purpose, purpose, big overarching project in your life. Once you accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, once you move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, there's this purpose. The Spirit is at work. The Father is at work. The Son is at work to make you into the image of Christ, helping you love like Jesus loves, helping you feel and experience the Father's love like Jesus feels and experiences the Father's love, helping you be gifted and equipped to serve the people of God, your brothers and sisters, um, helping you bear the fruits of the Spirit in your life. Jesus bore those fruits perfectly in his life. The love, the joy, the peace, the gentleness, the kindness, the faithfulness, the self-control. Jesus manifested those perfectly. And now you begin to manifest those as he grows in you and as the Holy Spirit transforms you, remakes you in the image of Jesus. Now, he's not going to make you us all into some sort of uh, androids or something, little Jesus robots. He's going to use your personality He's going to use your network of friends. He's going to use your life experiences. He's going to use all of that, your situation, to make you more like Jesus and to manifest Jesus in those places in unique ways. And he's going to use, remember, everything. Everything. 
Paul says. Romans 8, 28. The good, the bad, the pleasant, the painful, he's going to use it all, if you will let him, according to his purpose. Now finally, that amazing truth that we spoke to each other, the same power, Romans 8, 11. Oh, I love this. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Can I get an amen? The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Yes, you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit living in you. The same Spirit. The same power, the same Spirit, the same person of the Godhead, the same one who who made Easter happen. Paul says, he lives in you. He lives in you. And you can be confident of that reality. So write this one down. The Spirit provides for me. And by this, we mean to say, I have whatever I need. Whatever I need in each moment, the Spirit is providing for me. Now, this is certainly not an exhaustive list, okay? These are a few of the things that he provides for you from Romans chapter 8, one chapter in the Bible. And I don't even think I have everything from Romans 8 here. But Paul writes in Romans 8 that the Holy Spirit provides you with freedom, life, peace, power, courage. Help when you are weak. Intercession before God, Paul says, he even works as you're praying. Look, Gordon doesn't know what to pray, so the Holy Spirit's like, here's what he really needs, okay? Holy Spirit prays as we pray. It's a good reason we need to pray more. And resurrection, ultimately, my body will be resurrected. Every moment of every day, the Spirit within me provides me just what I need. I trust that. I believe that. I celebrate that. Now, we're almost done, but I have one more thing I want to say. Uh, I just want to be clear, because this will become very obvious as the series goes on. We might as well just label this now, and that is that in this series... You're not going to understand the Holy Spirit completely, right? That's not going to happen. And part of that might be my limitations as a preacher, as a teacher. Um, but the biggest reason, <laughs> I'm sure there are better ones out there, but the biggest reason that you're not going to understand the Holy Spirit, at least not fully, is you can't. You're not capable of understanding the Holy He's God. If you could understand the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit wouldn't amount to much, would He? 
He's beyond you. He's bigger than you. He's infinitely more than the circuitry of your mind can handle. Look, I don't even understand how my electric, electric toothbrush works, okay? And I'm going to understand how the Holy Spirit... Yeah, it's not going to happen. And what I want for you, what I want for me, I don't want to get a handle on the Holy Spirit. I want the Holy Spirit to get a handle on me. And there's a big difference. I don't want to get a handle on the Spirit. I want the Spirit to get a handle on me. Now what we're going to do to finish out, we're going to have an extended prayer time this morning. We'll sing several songs this morning. We'll have several songs going on. I would encourage you to get out and pray with someone while the group here is, is singing these songs. Because as you pray, the Holy Spirit is praying right there with you. The Spirit within you is interceding. You may not even be exactly sure, what am I supposed to pray for in this person's life? That's okay. The Holy Spirit knows exactly what they need. But we've got to start praying so He can do this amazing job that he does of interceding as we pray. So, so feel free to do that. In fact, I would more than free feel uh, a responsibility, in fact, to do that um, so that as Romans 8.27 says, the Spirit can work through your prayers. Um, the other thing would be, would be this, and it is maybe you are ready, and you can pray with me, you can pray with one of our shepherds or pray with somebody around you, um, but the other thing would be this, maybe you are ready to be adopted into God's family. Um, his grace, this invitation to be his child is open to everyone through Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrated last week um, through his story, the gospel story. And maybe you're ready to cross that line of faith and join his family and begin growing in that new identity as his child. And we would love to help you with that, baptize you into the name of Jesus this morning. Mostly, though, let's, let's be praying for each other this morning and let's respond as we stand together.